Hello and welcome to the Rogers Brief. I'm Adam Rogers. Thank you for watching and thank you for listening. So today is uh, June 1st and actually day 30 of the Mass Casualty Commission proceedings are ongoing right now uh, about uh, just taking a lunch break after the first panel on critical incident response and then there's a further uh, panel discussion scheduled for this afternoon which I'll watch and I'll report on all of that. But what I'm going to talk about now is actually yesterday's proceeding which was day 29 of the Mass Casualty Commission and involved the uh, taped uh, testimony of Sergeant Andy O'Brien who was the uh, who was a sergeant in the Colchester detachment of the RCMP uh, Sergeant O'Brien uh, spoke yesterday uh, to the Commission it was by zoom and it was taped and then it was the video of it was released last night uh, this is uh, part of the controversial uh, accommodations that were uh, granted to several of the witnesses, several of these uh, supervisors for the RCMP, at the request of the National Police Federation and the, and the uh, Federal Attorney General, uh, to testify without cross-examination, by video, uh, without uh, what the Commission called the pressure of live testimony, the time pressure of live testimony which, anyway, just as a standalone explanation, doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, they went through the day yesterday, took uh, regular breaks. They take breaks, they take lunch breaks during live testimony as well. I'm not sure how that was a distinction uh, that the commission identified, but they, they did, and they said so. So, that was their explanation. I watched some of the video last night. It was released or posted to the Mass Casualty Commission website yesterday evening. I watched some of it last night, some of it this morning, and then uh, have been watching the panel discussion as well. Uh, some experts from all over the place, uh, Texas, Finland, Norway, Toronto, and uh, Sydney, Nova Scotia. So uh, I'll report on that later. Sergeant O'Brien actually was called Mr. O'Brien by Anna Mancini, the uh, lawyer for the Mass Casualty Commission who was asking the questions. That was kind of interesting in itself, and presumably that was at uh, Sergeant O'Brien's request to be called Mr. He is retired now uh, from the RCMP, although other uh, retirees have been still referred to uh, by their titles, uh, staff sergeants typically, one corporal, uh, Corporal Mills. So, uh, Staff Sergeant, or sorry, Sergeant O'Brien was uh, questioned yesterday. Uh, with these accommodations, my observation would be similar to that of uh, Staff Sergeant Rahill and Staff Sergeant Carroll, which is to say that it did not appear at all as though Sergeant O'Brien required these accommodations when he was asked, when he was given the opportunity later in the day, this wasn't the case initially, which I'll talk about in a second, when he was given the opportunity to answer questions at length or to speak at length, and then when uh, Commissioner Fitch asked some questions later and he was had to speak at length and he was challenged a little bit in these these answers. He seemed to have no problem uh, answering the questions at length. He obviously had some things prepared that he wanted to say and get across and, and use in his answers sort of as, as talking point material, but um, nothing obvious about his demeanor, about his presentation, about his answers that would have suggested uh, that 
he needed these accommodations. So again, uh, I think this is uh, harming the credibility, certainly of the National Police Federation. I wonder what the commissioners think after they watch some of this testimony, after they've agreed to these accommodations, and then obviously they're not, uh, they weren't needed. Um, at some point, I think they're going to have to put their foot down at any further requests from the National Police Federation. And even I, I would say if some of the lawyers want to bring these witnesses back for further questions, uh, the commissioners should entertain those requests if they're substantiated with some, some topics that they want to have covered. So the uh, boycott of the commission proceedings, uh, which is extraordinary, uh, we should remind ourselves that that is an extraordinary thing to have happen during an inquiry, uh, that continued yesterday. Most of the family participants were not present. I understand that one of the lawyers from Patterson Law was present a little bit this morning for one of the panels, uh, but that has uh, that boycott has continued even beyond the witnesses for whom the accommodations were granted. So that'll be interesting to see how that unfolds, uh, which is uh, it's an ongoing situation. So Sergeant O'Brien, I would describe him uh, after watching his testimony as RCMP to the bone. He was uh, certainly there to, he was prepared to defend the organization. Uh, you know, talked about when he referred to the organization, it was always, you know, the we, uh, that's, you know, referred to it in the sort of first person. He had uh, certainly a planned explanation uh, describing the response, uh, he, he went to this a couple of times. He used an analogy of trying to describe the response to a critical incident such as this in a major incident as something akin to starting up a business of a hundred people, a hundred employee business just on the spot. Uh, it didn't really, that, that analogy didn't really seem to make sense to me. A, a business is not something that is a sort of a one-off situation. It's something that you would start and then presumably hope that would be, a, you know, a continuous um, entity for as long as the business was successful. So I didn't really understand that analogy. I know what he was trying to say is that you're gathering a bunch of things together at once and you're doing it all on the fly. Um, I think... Uh, you know, building the airplane while you're flying it is uh, is an analogy that's been used. I'm not sure that would be appropriate. In the, he didn't he didn't use that, but I've seen that analogy used. But this creating of a business uh, just on the spot, I think the analogy he may have been searching for, although he had lots of time to prepare, so I know he thought about this, or it seemed clear that he thought about this analogy a lot. It would be more like, you know, if you had to have a you know do an event like a wedding or a concert or you know a theater production and you know you had the parts you would maybe practice or done a rehearsal but you know you were just told all right on the spot you need to do this event do this concert do this performance now and we're going to give you the location and you just send everybody there to do it a one-off event uh, you, you know, everybody has their role and you go in and you, you do your thing and you wouldn't expect it to go perfectly well as you would if you had time to prepare and you, you know, you knew your location and you had everything set up in advance. Okay. Still, I'm not sure how helpful those kind of analogies might be other than to say, yes, it was a complicated thing to do. But the presumption behind that is an interesting one. So... 
the presumption that this sergeant is making, and I think some of the other supervisors seem to have this in their heads as well, is that we need to bring in a structure, bring in a large operation to face something like this. And that seemed to be part of the problem. Like the, the idea of a structure as sort of an end in itself, it's sort of a corporatist bureaucratic mindset that I think we're seeing some of this in the supervisory class of the RCMP is that, you know, bringing in this, this big structure with all of these parts is, you know, an important thing in itself. Well, you might suggest that having nimble, agile, flexible, well-qualified officers as first responders that can go in and make their own decisions without having to, you know, worry about the structure, without having to depend on, you know, a command post being set up in a timely manner close by, all of those things with people driving from hours away, you know, having those first responding officers in there being able to and have the capacity and the authority of the autonomy to make those decisions uh, seems like more of the, the proper approach to these kind of active shooter emergency situations. But, you know, when when you know, when structure is what you know and, you know, you this command, hierarchical command is what you're familiar with, maybe that's what you lean on in, in stressful times. The questioning from uh, Anna Mancini was very gentle, uh, very leading. Uh, she would uh, certainly initially, and then at different times throughout, she'd read entire paragraphs, like long paragraphs from the foundational document, and then basically say, well, what do you think? Do you react? Do you agree with that? And, you know, it would be a short answer and response. At one point, he, uh, he said, well, there's no playbook for something like this. And then her response was, well, I can certainly appreciate that. Well, not cheerleading isn't the right term necessarily, but it was certainly supportive, uh, the opposite of challenging of uh, those responses. You know, she was like, oh yeah, I guess so. Yes, we can see that. Um, and then, you know, the, the alcohol situation, we know that uh, Sergeant O'Brien admitted to having four or five uh, drinks of rum. I would tell you that uh, most judges I know uh, would take that number and, in their minds, double it to presume uh, what the person really had to drink, because nobody ever admits to the actual amount of alcohol they've consumed. Uh, so that was an interesting number. Uh, tight range, but uh, certainly would be safe to presume that he had more than uh, four or five. But she gave him a completely open field to uh, to talk about that, answer it, and say, you know, all the right things. Well, I wouldn't have, you know, I didn't want to be perceived. I wasn't impaired, but I didn't want to be perceived as, uh, you know, having made decisions uh, on the basis, uh, you know, on, under the influence of alcohol. Hard to judge. Uh, you know, I certainly have no issue with an officer having a few drinks on a Saturday night. They're not on duty. Um even an officer in a supervisory position making good decisions based on their training. I'd rather have somebody with a couple of drinks that's making decisions than somebody that just doesn't know what they're doing making decisions. Don't necessarily have a problem with all of that, but I don't think he made good decisions. Uh, he made some good comments, maybe helpful to uh, Constable Basel to say, you know, when he saw the flashlight, which... Um, 
was uh, Mr. Ellison in with his flashlight uh, to be cautious. Um, you know, and then later uh, to all the members, he went over the radio at midnight to say, "Listen, if you see this person and uh, the killer, and you you know you confront them, and they he doesn't comply with your instructions, then be be ready to act, be ready to shoot." Okay, good advice. Probably uh, was it necessary for him to come over the radio and say those things? Uh, maybe, maybe not. It's not clear. Uh, you know. It, seems to be like he was at home uh he had his wife go in and help him get his radio he was at his laptop so he had some some technical capabilities to get involved uh, but he wasn't on the scene he you know didn't have all of the proper information yet he was the one uh, making some of the decisions a key decision and this was one okay so a, a key decision was whether to send the second uh, IARD, the second group of officers that were stationed at the head of Portapique Beach Road, into the community. Uh, Basalt, Merchant, and Patton were already in there. Uh, Constable Grund uh, wanted to take us another second team in, and you know, see see what they could find. Well, uh, O'Brien says no, don't don't go in there. Well, he he waited. There was a break in the radio, uh, and he says. He expected other officers, other supervisors to give that instruction. And he said, which was an obvious and clear instruction in his mind, to not send a second IARD, IARD, Immediate Action Response Team, into Portapig. So, Miss Mancini asked this question, and it seemed probably at first as though it was a, you know, a tough question. You know, you said you weren't going to give any supervisory instructions because you were under the, you know, you had alcohol and you didn't want that to be misperceived. And yet very early on, there's this request and you jump on the radio and uh, give the instructions. So isn't that a, a contradiction? Well, O'Brien had an answer for that. Uh, you know, you, as you're watching this, you think, well, you know, that might, that seems like a tough question, especially for somebody under accommodations. But I can tell you that was a prepared exchange. There's no question that those the questions were known to uh, Sergeant O'Brien. He was prepared with his answer. He knew that question was coming, and he, his answer because he knew he knew the exact length of the gap. He said there was a 15-second gap there in the radio. Uh, you know, he talked about how he he spoke to the other sergeants and the supervisors afterwards, and you know they didn't hear the they didn't hear the request uh, or they agreed with his his decision. Um, so, you know, he was ready for that, uh, exchange. I thought he, you know, he, he had his, all, all his explanations ready, prepared remarks, um, and it all looks good, except it's so easy to do that when you know there's going to be no follow-up, you know there's going to be no cross-examination, you're not going to be challenged on any of your answers. Um, you know, for example, uh, I was... If there had been cross-examination on that question, why not send in the second team? Well, his concern was, you know, a blue-on-blue -blue shooting. Okay, how about you tell everybody to, you know, clear off the radio traffic to allow those two team commanders, Grund and Basel, to be talking to each other. Where are you? And coordinating themselves that way and making sure that there's no blue-on-blue -blue situation using the simple radio technology. So, you know... Why not allow that to happen? Uh, clear out, let them handle things, 
rather than imposing yourself as a supervisor on a situation where you have imperfect information. So uh, we'll uh, we'll see how that goes. We're I'll be interested to hear the rest of the uh, panel discussions on critical incident command. We haven't gotten into much uh, this morning yet as far as you know the incident, whether the, their analysis of the the critical response is more sort of general training commentary so far. So I'll talk about some of that later on in a video today. But um, wanted to talk about Andy O'Brien's testimony. Uh, Sergeant O'Brien testified yesterday with accommodations, which seemed completely unnecessary given his demeanor in his presentation. He had well-prepared answers to questions, uh, which were then not probed further to uh, delve into some of his decision-making process. Uh, decisions that were subject to, uh, you know, his the influence of alcohol. One of the things, uh, by the way, I noticed in uh, Sergeant O'Brien's experience was that he was in charge of connecting new recruits to mentors so that they had their proper six months of mentoring after their six months of training. And I wonder if he was sort of taking on some of the uh, the characteristics of a cautious parent. You know, alcohol can kind of amplify... Uh, previously held you know sort of views or personality characteristics and if he was sort of a, you know in charge of these young recruits maybe he's a little protective uh, by nature and his cautious advice may have been uh, amplified by a few drinks of rum who knows um, and then also the just the the instinct to take over as a supervisor and assert yourself uh, of course Everybody knows that somebody who's drinking is going to be more assertive, um, typically, than somebody who's not. So was his instinct to get involved, feel the need to be involved as the sergeant from Colchester, uh, was that the result of his alcohol consumption as well? We don't know, uh, but uh, certainly some lessons will be learned from that one, and we'll, uh, we'll see what the commission says about it. So that's all for uh, day 29 of the Mass Casualty Commission proceedings. I'll be back uh, later this evening with some commentary on the uh, panel discussions that's being held. So uh, until then, thank you for watching and thank you for listening and we will see you next time.